five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. And welcome back into the Bama on three show. This is your host, Clint Lamb, sitting here once again with Jimmy Stein. Jimmy, Tuesday morning. You feel any better the further we get from uh, from Saturday? Yes, but only because I'm an Atlanta Braves fan and we might clinch the uh, uh, division series today and make it to the National League Championship. So I'm choosing to focus on that for my sports happiness at this moment. I think Tony Robbins would be proud. You know, you choosing to to focus on, you know, it's all about what you choose to focus on. Uh, but yep. I'm not a huge baseball guy. I keep up with it. I, I'll get more and more into it the further the Braves go, because if I had to choose a team, it would be the Braves. Um, my granddad was a huge Braves fan and watched literally every game. Um, that's not me. But it, it man, at one point in time, I don't think anybody saw this coming with the Braves. Um, they were struggling to get to 500, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Correct pretty late in the season, uh, or at least, you know, around the midway point. And then all of a sudden they start losing key players and somehow things catch fire. So it's funny how that happens. Yeah. I mean, the uh, best hitter on the team, Acuna only played in about, you know, half the season. Uh, Marcelo Zuna, who's a star player, got arrested for domestic violence. So he's missed the whole season with his arrest. So they, they literally lost two of their three best hitters and a starting pitcher uh Soroka who they thought they would have who was going to be a star player so they literally lost three of their stars and were a 500 team all the way up to the end of July and this team was just it was just a almost a wasted season and then they made a few acquisitions at the trade deadline that sparked the whole run and uh here they are just one game short of the National League Championship Series uh yeah that, that that's been a lot of, of fun for me I mean I, I, I love the Braves. I've been a Braves fan my whole life. I, I, I watch the Braves every day, even now. But, uh, you know, it's not Alabama. I mean, Alabama comes first. You, you know, the Braves were in the playoff Saturday, and the way I handled that is they were even playing uh, during the Alabama game. And Alabama so consumes me that the way I handled it Saturday is I, I did my best to pretend like the Braves weren't even playing. I, I looked at my phone. I didn't watch a single pitch Saturday. I just would look at my phone every now and then and just – casually mentioned an hour into the uh, Alabama game. Oh, the Braves won. Cool. <laughs> okay, so they did win because that would have been even worse. Sat- if. Yep, Saturday, and they won yesterday too. Good deal. And, and I mean, are they playing today? Yes, today. It's uh, today, Tuesday at uh, uh, 4 o'clock Central, and if they beat the Brewers today, they are uh, they're in the National League Championship against the winner of the uh, Giants-Dodgers series. For all you Braves fans out there, we got a nice little recap from Jimmy. Thanks. Well, thanks for joining us on the On Three Brave Show. <laughs> we are going to talk a little bit Alabama. Um, really, we're going to be answering questions. It's a mailbag episode. We've got, you know, yesterday was kind of us breaking down our thoughts and, and sharing as much as we possibly could. And we went over an hour. You know, there's not a whole lot more um, that we could have dove into as far as what we thought about the game. I'm sure, you know, the timeouts and stuff, and we'll be talking about that a little bit today. Um, but man, a ton of questions. I asked for questions as far as, you know, the, the BCS Alabama message boards, um, I asked on Twitter for questions and no disappointment from our end. We got tons. In fact, we're not going to be able to get to all of them. Um, Jimmy and I have already said that we are considering doing a second part, a part two, uh, of the mailbag so we can get everything answered because what I don't want 
And I know sometimes it's unrealistic um, and it might reach this point and it might've already reached this point. We'll just have to see how this goes. But you know, I, I, if someone asks a question and it's a specific question, now granted there are going to be some in here that, you know, people are pretty much asking the same thing. Um, but if you ask something and nobody else has asked it or, you know, it's, it's some variation of something, I really would like to, to get it answered because it's a question that you have. And I think that, you know, Jimmy, you know, bringing his expertise to the situation and me bringing my opinion on things, you know, maybe it'll help you uh, work some things out, especially following a loss. So we always want to try to answer every question that we possibly can. And before I keep rambling on, we'll just go ahead and dive in so we can get through this as, as quickly as possible. Um, but the number one thing, and I knew that this was going to be a question, and there's really three of them. And I'll go ahead and give everybody credit uh, and, and kind of give them a shout out for asking, but they're all variations pretty much of the same thing. And Brian P. on Twitter asked, what is preventing Saban from starting J.C. Latham at right tackle? Is it experience, strength, and or, you know, something else? With six games under his belt, I think we have enough film to know that Owens is a liability and likely won't show anything different the second half of the season. Tucker Seal on Twitter asked, does Chris Owens need to be replaced at right tackle? So, Jimmy, what, what are your thoughts on the right tackle situation? We've talked about it a little bit. And I thought that sure. you had a great point yesterday when we did talk about it, but, you know, kind of share your thoughts on both JC Latham, Chris Owens. You can throw some Damian George in there as well. Just what are your right. thoughts on that position right now? Well, a few things. Uh, I get it. Uh, you know, I, I don't even know that people realize, I mean, just, just to show that, that Chris did struggle and I hate to just pick on one kid when the whole, when the, the whole team lost, we didn't lose because, Chris Owens didn't play well. You know, there's a lot of players that didn't play well. Will Anderson made that clear in his press conference uh, yesterday, uh, not to mention Nick. But, no, Chris didn't play well. The Texas A&M defensive lineman that was lined up on Chris was named the Senior Bowl Prospect of the Week for his performance against Chris. Uh, you know, Michael Clemens, uh, literally the Senior Bowl Prospect of the Week for his game, and he was the one – helmet to helmet locked up with Chris Owens for almost that whole 60 minutes. So yes, Chris struggled to get that guy blocked. A few things I have to say about it. Number one, uh, in Chris's defense, he's not going to play a kid as good as Clemens most weeks. Most weeks he won't. Mississippi State does not have a Clemens. Not really. Uh, you know, and and I don't know that that Tennessee will or 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 frankly LSU uh, or Auburn. Uh, Georgia will. George is going to be a problem for Chris and the rest of our offensive line. But Chris did struggle to get that one kid blocked, and it was a tough matchup for him. Secondly, I'd say this. For everybody that's convinced that J.C. Latham or Damian George would be better, just remember this. You haven't seen those kids play in games, so if you think they're better, it's fine to have that opinion, but realize you're basing your opinion on hope and recruiting rankings. I mean, that's what you're – you're basing it on, oh, someone else must be better. Well, you don't know that. Uh, who does know that is the coaches who are in practice every single day. Also say this, I, I get to go to a couple practices, you know, per year, and uh, I I've seen those those kids put one, one scrimmage situation I saw, we gave up double-digit sacks in a single game, and a lot of it was because of what was happening at the tackle situations. And it wasn't Chris Owens out there. It was these other kids that everybody wants to see play double digit sacks in a game, primarily because of, of that spot. So I, I, I don't assume that the next kid up will be a better player. I really don't. Uh, I, I don't think that's fair uh, to just 
replace your opinion with a hope that the next kid is better. Okay, now to uh, to the other point, I would make a change myself, even after all that, and this is why. <laughs> Georgia at the end, this is why. Y'all remember uh, a couple years ago, uh, three years ago, in fact, when Dabo did something very brave and smart, believe it or not, here I am critic- uh, 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 propping up Dabo, but he did something very brave and smart three years ago. He had an experienced quarterback in Kelly Bryant who really was a pretty good player and had done some good things and had won some games. And Dabo practically overnight in the middle of a season said, you know what? I'm going to go with my true freshman, Trevor Lawrence, over my experience, Kelly Bryant. And this is the reason we've got some really big-time opponents coming up this year, and I want my most talented kid ready to play. So my point is, you know, J.C. Latham, let's use him as an example, and it could be Latham or Damian George, doesn't matter which one. I do think that both of those kids have more upside than Chris Owens. They have more natural talent than Chris Owens does as a right tackle. And hopefully we will play Georgia at the end. And I can just go ahead and tell you right now, I mean, poor Chris, uh, and I don't, you know, I hope he proves me wrong. But, you know, I worry Georgia would eat that kid alive. I mean, Georgia has the best defensive line anywhere south of the NFL. I mean, th- th- there's there are like four first-round picks up there. And, and if we couldn't block A&M, Georgia's going to be a much tougher opponent. So maybe it's time to go with one of those upside kids because that might give us a chance against Georgia, a bigger, taller, stronger kid that will eventually play in the NFL might give you a better chance when you play those freaks that Georgia's got. Now, does that mean that this kid, if we played him this week, would grade out better at right tackle than Chris Owens against Mississippi State? Probably not, because Chris knows the assignments. He knows uh, mentally. He has the experience. Chris probably do a better job against, quote, Mississippi State. But if I was making a change, it would be because of what Dabo did three years ago, four years ago now, putting in Trevor over Kelly Bryant with the idea that, hey, when I play somebody really, really, really good, I'm going to wish that Trevor was out there with a little experience under his belt. And for that reason, I think it might be time to go to one of those backups. But unlike other fans, I'm not 100% convinced we'd get better play out of that spot than we get from Chris. So Loyalty. Sorry, sorry for that 40-minute answer, but I'm a lawyer. <laughs> Loyalty. You know, uh, that's that's the only thing I really worry about here. Um, and I'm not trying to single out Chris Owens. Um, I guarantee you, you know, he's a guy that holds himself accountable. That's not an issue for him. And so if you were to ask him, how do you think you've been performing? You know, he would be very critical of himself. Uh, maybe not to the point where he thinks he needs to get benched, um, you know, which is understandable. But, you know, Nick Saban in the past, um, loyalty is big with him. And Chris Owens, you know, choosing to come back and, and be a veteran presence along the offensive line after they lost several guys, he ended up not working out at center. Um, and and I think that just he struggles to handle speed and strength on, on the edge. And that's a problem because if you can't handle speed and you can't handle strength, you know, what can you handle? You know, because most of the guys you're going to be going against probably has one of those two things. Um, you know, in my in my mind, envisioning that Georgia game. I don't know if you remember when the Panthers played the Broncos in the Super Bowl, but there was a guy by the name of Mike uh, Zimmer or, or Mike Rimmer, excuse me, at right tackle for the Panthers, and he went against Von Miller. And I've never seen an offensive tackle get that abused in a football game. Um, in fact, you know, Mike Rimmers is still playing in the league. I, last I checked, 
Um, he was with the Kansas City Chiefs last year. I don't know if he still is or not. I don't think so. But point being, um, I, I, I'm shocked that he was playing in the NFL as recently as last year. I thought that that one game was going to single-handedly end his career uh, with the way that Von Miller abused him. And I'm not saying that Georgia would be that big of an issue for Chris Owens, but based off of what we saw on Saturday night against uh, Texas A&M, I think that Chris Owens has got to make a ton of improvement. And and so, you know, sometimes it's the fear of the unknown. You know what you're getting in in Chris Owens. And, but the problem is what you're getting is not that great. Um, you know, sometimes people stay in abusive relationships uh, because <laughs> – <laughs> Why? Because it's what they know. They, they, it's as bad as, or as terrible as it is, they fear what they don't know more than they fear what they know, which they know is bad. So I, you know, if I, if I were Alabama at this point, I'm not saying that I would make the change. I'm saying that I would open up the competition and I would give both JC Latham and Damian George an opportunity to win that job uh, in practice. And, and if Chris Owens gets in there and practice and, and maybe he's already done that and, and the coaching staff is like, He's won the job. I mean, but we're now six games into the season. You know, those players that have been practicing each and every week, you have to assume that they're getting better. Um, I would give them a chance to, to earn the starting job. And if Chris Owens comes out on top in that position battle at, at this point, then okay, you stick with him. But otherwise, you know, I'd at least give those guys a chance. Next question, Lynn on Twitter, and this is somewhat similar, um, you know, but there's some differences and some, some new ads in here i guess you'd say how can we strengthen our o and d lines with the players we have now a new playbook uh question mark it's tough enough playing at kyle field and with such poor performances by the lines i was not surprised at all now for me um i'll go ahead and say this i that the, the texas a&m game was won by texas a&m in the trenches you know their defensive line handled alabama's offensive line their offensive line, surprisingly enough, completely manhandled Alabama's defensive line in a lot of situations, despite having two true freshman uh, starters who performed extremely well. Um, you know, it's it, it's tough because th this is an issue that needs to be addressed because Alabama right now is not being, you know, the, in a lot of situations against these really good football teams, they're not the more physical football team. And I think that needs to change. So, Jimmy, what are your thoughts on this one? Well, the lines on both sides of the ball have to get better. There's a there's absolutely no no doubt that we have to improve. And let's be a little honest here. You know, during a lot of the dynasty, a lot of these national championship teams, the offensive line was great. This one's not going to be. This offensive line isn't going to be great. We did we failed to replace Landon Dickerson and Alex Leatherwood and Deontay Brown. We, what, what we've replaced them with for this season just isn't as good. The wide receiver core. It just isn't as good without Devontae Smith and Jalen Waddle. Uh, the running back group is not as good with Brian number one and then the injury problems behind him as opposed to last year when we had Najee number one and Brian number two. Uh, this has been, I think, we have to face the fact that offensively, this is the first time in the dynasty or one of the few times that we've had to replace the last wave of NFL players and we just didn't replace them with as good a players. That, that's just what's happened. So to focus on the offensive line, that's what happened. It's just not last year's group. Now, to Bill O'Brien's credit, and he hasn't had much credit this week, but let's credit him with this. Despite what I just said, which I am adamant, adamantly believe is true, we still had 522 yards of offense. 
We still scored 31 offensive points on the road in this game and scored 31 offensive points on the road in Gainesville. We are still finding yards and production and points on offense despite going backwards at offensive line, at wide receiver, at running back. Uh, Credit the coaches and players for finding a way to still be productive. I think bigger issues to me in terms of the program, in terms of the direction of things, is on the defensive side because the defense doesn't have those excuses that the offense has. The defense really only lost a defensive tackle, Christian Barmore, in a corner and Pat Sertan, and that's it. They also lost Dylan Moses, but inside linebackers are very experienced, and Dylan was undrafted, and that's not really a thing. They lost one defensive tackle and one cornerback. The defense should be carrying us, and they're not. They're not, particularly the front seven, particularly how Texas A&M's offensive line, which had two new starters, uh, just whipped us. And uh, that's where the real problems are. I think Nick has to take a long look at, at the coaching on that side of the ball uh, at himself. He's responsible for some of that on defense too. But uh, this, this defense and that defensive line with Tim Smith and Byron Young and Phil Mathis, who is having a good year, uh, LeBron Ray, DJ Dale, they should be better than they are. I have no real answer for that. You heard a lot of Will Anderson's frustration yesterday when Will Anderson uh, faced the media yesterday. Uh, if you haven't watched that yet, Y'all should should Google it. Go back and watch Will Anderson's press conference. I think it was very telling. He he was frustrated with the leadership and uh, frustrated with his teammates because uh, I tell you, Will Will Anderson he 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 plays that game at a hundred percent all the time. Uh, and it's telling that a true sophomore is the real leader of that defense. So here's the thing. Um... You know, because they're going so much, you know, they're using outside linebackers as defensive ends in a lot of situations. You got essentially two starters on your defensive line, and you've gotten five different players who have played over 100 snaps so far this year. So, over, you know, 25% of the team snaps. And you've got other guys in there as well. You know, Jamil Burroughs has played 26 snaps, LeBron Ray, you know, was injured to start the year, but he's played 28 snaps. He would definitely be up there. Um, you know, closer to 100 if he had been healthy for the entirety of the season. Stephon Wynn has played 42 snaps. The the point being here is that they're rotating a ton on the defensive line, on the interior of their defensive line. And, and what's interesting about it is really the edge guys, they're locked in. The interior guys, they're, they're rotating in a ton. And I just wonder, you know, it, it's not quarterback where you need to get some momentum or anything like that. And I also think you got to keep guys fresh. And, and normally it's a good thing to have – you know, guys rotating in and, and keeping everybody, you know, uh, completely fresh. Um, so I, I don't know if, if, if dialing it back is necessarily the answer, but it just seems like whatever they're doing right now, is it working? You're getting too many flashes and it. And maybe it's just a situation where when you're playing too few snaps in a football game, you kind of locking down your consistency, you know, is a lot more difficult. You know, if you're coming in for three or four snaps and you're going back to the sidelines and you're not seeing, you know, the field for three or four drives, if you're Tim Smith, Maybe Tim Smith needs to be out there and, you know, playing more of an every down role and, and allowing him to kind of take the bumps and bruises that he's going to take, but learn how to play with more consistency because he's out there more. I don't, and I'm not saying that that's the answer. I'm just saying you ask a question on what they can do now. Um, 
And, and that's one of the, the things that I would maybe look at trying to, to figure out. It's a tough you know, question. It's a tough situation. Um, what I do know is that their defensive line, there's way too many inconsistencies. You've got a lot of guys who flash. Um, Fidelia Mathis has probably been the most consistent guy, you know, along the defensive front, but even he has had some issues at times, um, being consistent and, and, you know, why is that a problem and what can you do differently to take care of that problem? So I'll be curious to see how they end up addressing that moving forward. Okay. Hampton 18 on the BCS message boards asked, uh, what is it going to take for some of these young, talented guys on the offensive line, wide receiver position and secondary to get some run when veterans are making routine mistakes. So this is a very similar question. It kind of goes out to the wide receivers in the secondary. So we'll put more of our, our focus on that as far as at wide receiver. And as far as, you know, on the back half of Alabama's defense, Jimmy, you know, what are you seeing and what kind of changes do you think they should, um, you know, and, and I'll tell you what, we'll go ahead and include this next question as well, because it falls right in line with that. John on Twitter asked what specific personnel changes would you like to see going forward? Also, what freshmen behind the scenes are you hearing good things about? Yeah, uh, you know, one thing uh, about that is, you know, me and you uh, might have our own opinions, <laughs> you know, about who should play and, and and who we should add and we should fire this guy and promote this other guy. Look, Nick Saban's been here for 15 full years now. If you don't understand or see how Nick Saban works by now, you're, you're never going to see it. The fact of the matter is, it has not been commonplace in these last 15 years that Nick has been in charge that we have a lot of personnel changes. Nick has not been a guy who when a kid played bad or a unit played bad, that the next week there were wholesale changes. He's never done that. I mean, now there has been instances, I'm sure if we sat here and, and thought it through going back to 07, we might remember an instance of that happening, or we might remember that a freshman might have played more in November than we saw in September. There are instances of that happening. But in general, Nick doesn't really do that. He has picked his horses uh, at the start of uh, at the end of fall camp, and that's who he reps and gets ready for the games, and he sticks with those guys. You can call it loyalty, uh, but it, it's not uncommon for successful coaches to do that. Uh, so there are some names that I would like to see as a, as a fan that, you know, that, that sits up in the seats at the games, but I don't think you're going to see it on the field because uh, Nick's never really coached that way. I think if there are changes, they would be more subtle. Um, for instance, maybe in the secondary that, uh, that Hampton mentioned in his question, uh, you know, DeMarco Hellams uh, hasn't played great. Uh, I, th I thought he had a game, similar to to Chris Owens, you know, this past week, Helms and and it wasn't Helms first time, I thought, where he didn't play well. They could go back to Daniel Wright there. Helms sort of beat out Daniel Wright in the in late last year in this offseason. So that could happen. But I think largely Helms, you know, that could be a guy that could end up benched in favor of Daniel Wright, or they could go with Malachi Moore, Brian Branch at safety. I think that might be a change. And I think we might see another freshman receiver. I know we just blocked a kick, but maybe Ja'Cory Brooks uh, is a guy that, that could play that we haven't seen yet. So there's these minor changes, these minor adjustments that might be made. But I don't expect wholesale changes because Nick Saban has never coached that way. And, and I don't think he's going to start now. Was that Nick Saban calling you on the phone? Uh, you know, are you revealing too much as far as I, personnel changes that need to happen? 
I hope to God it wasn't Chris Owens coming to kick my ass. <laughs> you know what? If he knocked on my door, I was like, I would just say, you know what? Take some swings, man. I, I deserve it. Um, cause I feel bad. You flirt with this idea. This is a, a young kid. You know, I understand that he's a veteran presence on Alabama's offense. Um, I guess at, at this point he's, he's in his early twenties. Um, you know, so calling him a kid necessarily maybe wouldn't be fair, but you know, he's still a young developing guy and, and you hate, you know, bashing on, it feels like bashing and that's not the intent, but it's just kind of how it feels sometimes. But, um, you know, I, as far as my personal opinion on this, um, I completely agree with you. I think that there are, you know, players, uh, that need to be playing more in my opinion. Uh, and, and it's just based off of you, you're seeing what's happening and you're saying, okay, what, whatever is happening is not working. You need to try some different things. And offensively, you know, you're going the Mechie route, which I agree. You know, I think he's going to continue to be a part, a huge part of the offense. I know that, you know, Jamison Williams is going to be a huge part of the offense. But I think that with what's going on, we you know, as far maybe not from a personnel uh, standpoint, but from a just getting him more involved, I, I'll continue to reiterate. I think you need to figure out more ways to get JoJo Earl the football. Um, yep. Explosive player, uh, you know, can provide a spark to your offense, can turn short gains you know, into, into long gains, um, you know, or short yardage types of plays, uh, scripted plays in the long gains. Um, so that would be one. I agree with Ja'Cory Brooks. Um, I don't know where he's at as far as his development. I think Tim Smith is a guy that I would be getting more and more involved just because I think from a pure talent standpoint, he's the most talented defensive lineman you have. Is he the best defensive lineman you have? No, not not even close uh, right now. You know, I think Federia Mathis as far as impact and, and just overall, um, uh, you know, production, he's by far and away the best defensive lineman Alabama has right now. But I think Tim Smith needs to be more and more involved. And, and they're doing that to give them credit. Um, but like I said, as far as the personnel changes, maybe dialing it back a little bit with a rotation on the defensive line, maybe that'll work. Maybe it wouldn't. Um, and then I loved your, your comment about, you know, making some kind of changes in the secondary and, and particularly at safety. And I think, you know, you've been splitting time between Malachi Moore and Brian Branch at star. And, and I understand it to some degree because they're both extremely talented players. Uh, but why, why are those two, those are two of your most talented defensive backs. Why are they the ones that splitting time? You know, in my right. opinion, I think that Brian Branch needs to be a full-time starter. Uh, I think that, you know, Malachi Moore needs to be a full-time starter, which when you're playing at safety, probably more, because that's the way you played it in week one against Miami. But those guys need to be on the field for pretty much every snap, um, unless you get thrown out of the game like Malachi Moore did for targeting. Um, and then from there, you rotate the other guys. And it's not like, you know, you've given them opportunities. And I know as a coach, you know, you know these guys personally, and you know their personalities, and you believe in them, and you want to believe in them. Um, but, you know, at, the, at, at a certain point, it's just not working. And, and with DeMarco Hellams particularly, I'm still a big fan. I still think he's got, you know, some, some talent, could end up being a good player in the future. But right now, he's a liability and, and defensively, it's, it, you know, you keep talking about how it's not Pete Golding's fault for Nick Saban. And I think, you know, to some degree he is correct. Um, okay. Then what is it? It's the guys in the field that aren't executing. So stop saying we just need better execution. And if you're not getting the better execution from the guys you got on the field, get some different guys on the field, um, address it in some ways. Don't just keep banging your head against the wall and saying we need better execution and, and you're not doing anything to change it. Um, you're just expecting these guys to improve and, and you've given them ample opportunities. It's not like you haven't, it's not like we're one game into the season. Um, right. So that's my thoughts on, on hey, two, that. Two, two things about that real quick. 
Um, two things. We, we probably haven't talked about this enough, and this isn't scoop. This isn't inside stuff. It's just some, it, let's call it 10% inside scoop and 90% theory. But, you know, Malachi Moore missed the entire spring, and his injury was to his back. So I've wondered if perhaps Malachi is splitting snaps and not playing 60 minutes in a game because we're trying to manage his back, which is a little different than a knee or a shoulder. I wonder and again, I don't know this. I'm just wondering if Malachi is not a full-time player because of the back, because that would explain some things. If it is the back, some things in the secondary now start making more sense. If we're trying to manage the number of snaps he plays, so is back, because again, backs are tricky. They're not like knees. Uh, secondly, if someone says, oh, so y'all are fine with with changing up the defensive backfield, and then Jimmy said on the offensive line, you know, that we're just hoping these other guys – well, we've seen Malachi play. We've seen yeah. Brian Brink. Those aren't new guys. Now, we are saying they should have bigger roles, but they're not new. Malachi has been a starter. Brian Branch has been a starter. We've seen these guys. It's not like on the offensive line, Damian George and J.C. Latham, who have only played a handful of snaps in garbage time. It's a completely different situation. Completely agree. Um, and and that's, that is the, the key difference. Um, all right. I mean, I could keep talking about this one question for forever, uh, but I know we got to move on. And, and man, I'm really trying to stay disciplined with this. You guys ask great questions uh, that we could, I could take this and, and turn this into three weeks worth of content, um, breaking down, you know, spending 30 minutes on every question. And I really wish that we could, and maybe we might reach a point where we just do like one question every day. And I just throw more on my plate because I love you guys asking questions and I love answering them. But next question on the list BG Win on the BCS message boards asked, any updates on the running backs? Are we giving any practice reps to an emergency player yet? And how is Sanders' health? And then, of course, when I first read this, I was like, well, I'd just throw in the random, you know, Drew Sanders question at the end. He's talking about Trey Sanders, I'm guessing. The, the entire thing is, you know, running back yeah. related. So, Jimmy, take it away. Yeah, uh, Trey Sanders, uh, you know, this is my understanding. Clint may have more information than me on this. So if you do, Clint, oh, what, what I'm done, chime in or correct this. But I, I, I think what's going on with Trey is, look, he beat the expectations all spring in terms of where he is health-wise. He beat the expectations all summer. There was this thought going into fall camp is, hey, let's put that black jersey on Trey and just let's just see what he can handle. But no, he didn't wear a black jersey a single day in fall camp. He was a full go. They told him he could ask out of drills. He did not. He participated in every one of them. He participated in scrimmages in the fall, full contact, no black jersey. And then against Miami, he played. Uh, he, play, he played quite a bit. Uh, some of it was because Roydell Williams fumbled and they benched him. But <laughs> Trey played uh, quite a bit in those first couple of games. And we haven't seen him since. So adding two and two here, but I think because he beat expectations, I wonder if it was all too much too soon and he might be experiencing some level of soreness or maybe he slowed up or maybe uh, what a statistics guy might say, he's regressed to the mean in terms of dealing with his injuries. Because uh, it wasn't thought, you know, several months ago that he would be, quote, this healthy. Uh, I I'm wondering if those early games – and all the practice reps was just too much too soon, and that's why we've seen less of him. Uh, 
Secondly, I think we came into the season with the idea we were going to do this position by committee, that it would be two guys, three guys, or even four guys. And what's happened is we've lost Jace McClellan for the season. Uh, Trey may not be as healthy as we wanted. Kamar Wheaton has never been healthy. He didn't even participate in scrimmages. He's never been healthy. So we only have, you know, three backs right now, and one of them is Trey. So at the same time, Brian Robinson, the last two weeks, has proven that he might be up to being an alpha, that he might be up to the Najee role and the Derrick Henry role of, hey, give him the ball 25 times. He'll handle it. He'll still be productive. That's happened at the same time, which squeezes Roy Dell out of carries, squeezes Trey Sanders out of carries. So I think what this may be morphing into, Clint, is the Brian Robinson show at running back. And hey, the last two weeks, he's been very, very productive doing that. Uh, the emergency backs, by the way, in terms of who they moved to running back in case of emergency, they moved two players, not one. One is Demoy Kennedy, the backup inside linebacker from Theodore. Uh, Demoy uh, wasn't in the rotation at inside linebacker. He's playing some at special teams. They moved him to running back. He's been playing there, to my knowledge, exclusively. Uh, I, you know, there was no reason to keep him at inside linebacker uh, for the time being because he wasn't in the plans there this fall. Uh, so they have moved him to running back. He did play running back a big chunk of his senior year at Theodore and was pretty productive. As a matter of fact, he ran for a 99-yard touchdown his senior year against McGill, a good 7-8 team. Uh, so Demoy had some experience, and he's a bigger back. To get some quickness there, they have moved Christian Leary from wide receiver to running back, which was a little surprising to me. But I guess the thought being that, uh, hey, let's uh, let, let's let's get a thunder lightning kind of committee there. Demoy Kennedy being the big physical guy, Christian Leary being the fast outside runner who would also be good catching the ball out of the backfield, obviously. So uh, the emergency backs are Demoy Kennedy and Christian Leary. I don't know if calling emergency backs is accurate anymore because, to my knowledge, they're playing running back full time right now. And and that's a. I think you summed that up pretty well, uh, to be quite honest. And you know, when I was trying to approach, you know, who could end up getting moved, everybody was talking about Jalen Milrow, and people were talking about, you know, maybe Christian Harris, and you know, all these different guys, and and. You know, I ended up doing an article kind of breaking down some of the candidates. Um, Slade Bolden was one that just made sense. I think that based off of the two moves that we have actually seen, the coaching staff did not want to take away from another position. They didn't want to move the backup quarterback or one of their backup quarterbacks to running back. They didn't want to move a starting slot receiver to running back. They didn't want to move a starting linebacker to running back. Um, you know, and even guys like, uh, you know, Deontay Lawson, who I thought could potentially be a guy. You know, I understand they're very deep at at an off-ball linebacker, you know, with Shane Lee and, and Jalen Moody and, you know, Henry Toto and Christian Harris. You know, Deontay Lawson probably right now is viewed as the, the off-ball linebacker number five. But I still think that at a certain point, you could end up working your way into that depth if, if something started to happen. And we've seen in the past with guys, you know, Joshua McMillan and Dylan Moses, and you just want to be ready to make sure that you keep that kind of level of depth at that particular position because it's such an important position and just having, you know, guys, you know, Deontay Lawson is a guy who I think they believe could eventually be a very important part of the defense. And you want to, to leave him there and continue to get him prepared for whenever that day comes. So, you know, in hindsight, it makes sense. Um, but, you know, Des Moines Kennedy and, and Christian Leary, both those guys are, you know, no offense to them. They're at the bottom of the depth chart. 
at their respective positions so they can make that move and then you know end up back in their natural spot later and just continue to try to work their development from there um so you know like they're stay there i i would get my guess i mean i'm sure they'll do some impressive things at running back in practice but uh I, I should have said that back then, but you no, know, I think when the spring rolls around, my expectation would be that Demoy Kennedy will be back with his uh, linebacker group, and Christian Leary will be back with the receivers uh, because they'll 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 you know uh, Jace should be healthy next year, uh, Kamar Wheaton should be healthy next year, Trey Sanders will be more healthy. Uh, only Brian Robinson uh, it, it will be lost, and and then they should have two freshmen coming in. Uh, obviously. Uh, Henderson from Geneva County is already committed. And uh, I think they're going to get Javante Barnes. Nobody's asked that yet, but uh, I think Javante Barnes running back from Las Vegas uh, is the guy that could commit to Alabama before signing day. Yeah. Um, and I completely agree. I mean, just getting Henderson, you're essentially replacing Brian Robinson with Henderson. Um, right. And you, you go right back to having the level of depth before the injuries. Um, and if you get that, that, six guy um to, to really add to the depth so this doesn't happen again then great um all right next question tucker seal on twitter asked b rob jameson williams obviously and john mechie three-headed monster that we need to feed on offense yes <laughs> well i'll say this uh just kind of jumping in real quick to some degree, uh, yes, um, but we also can't forget. I really think this whole. I understand they didn't have a great game um, uh, against Texas A and M, but this two tight end stuff, you know, is really working with Cameron Latou and Jaleel Billingsley. So, talking about feeding a three headed monster with with Brian Robinson Jr., Jamison Williams, and John Mechie, I think Jamison Williams is going to continue to be the number one. I think Brian Robinson is you know working his way in, into at least averaging twenty carries a game. Um, with a couple of catches. I mean, I think you've also displayed the ability to be receiving back out of the backfield against Texas A&M with his four catches for like 60 yards. And then I think you got two tight ends who you can, uh, who you can rely on um, to be, you know, reliable pass catchers. And then I think from there, you know, outside of getting JoJo Earl involved, and, and obviously John Mechie is still going to be an important part of the offense too, not saying that he won't, but I, I wouldn't say a three-headed monster with those guys because if they're, if they're the monsters – those two tight ends uh, can't be. And maybe that's the whole point of the question. Maybe you saw what they did against Texas A&M with a two drop from Billingsley, the touchdown drop from Cameron Latou, and he's down on them now all of a sudden. They're two very dynamic weapons. They had a poor game uh, just about like everybody else against A&M. So they're going to continue to be a part of whatever monsters you're trying to build on offense. Yeah, I would even go this far. An opinion, fun guess uh, from here on out. You know, we've played six games. Now there's six games to go. I would bet going forward over these last six games, assuming good health for everyone, uh, I I bet Jaleel Billingsley gets more targets than any other player that we throw the ball to. More targets than Jamison Williams, more than Mechie, more than Latu, more than a, a specific back out of the backfield like Robinson. I think we throw the ball to Jaleel or try to more than any other player on offense. And I think Jaleel is our best Put it this way, in some ways, he's our best weapon on offense because he's a mismatch. No matter where you line up Billingsley, we've got a mismatch there. If there's a linebacker on him, he's faster. If there's a DB on him, he's bigger. Uh, And I think we will take advantage of that more and more as Billingsley's just getting his feet under him. Let's remember, he didn't play much in games one, two, and three. He wasn't out there very much due to the doghouse, not a suspension, but sort of a doghouse. So 
I think we're spreading it around on offense more than just having, uh, you know, a three-headed monster. And uh, let me also say there's too much negativity out there about Mechie. Uh, now, uh, you know, in terms of is he a wide receiver one, you know, and, and, and I'm not even really sure what that means, even though I use the term all the time. What does that mean? But I, I know this, Mechie is fifth in the entire SEC in receptions. So, yeah, he's dropped a couple. And maybe he hasn't had as many big plays as we would like to see, but he's fifth in the league in number of passes caught. Uh, he is not a liability in any way. Uh, is he Devontae Smith? Well, hell no. But it, did someone believe that he would be? I mean, he's not that dude. He's not going to be, you know, the the 10th pick in the draft. That's just not who he is. But Mechie's a good player, and Jamison Williams is good, and Brian Robinson is good. And those tight ends are good. Uh, if we have a great player on offense at a skill position, frankly, it's Bryce Young. And uh, he's going to get better every week, too. So as I pointed out much earlier in the show, considering what we lost on offense and considering we have not replaced what we lost on offense, the offense has really been very productive. And that's a credit to Bill O'Brien and the dudes that are playing. And in particular, Bryce Young, because I, I don't even think most of our fans realize how good he is because we've had so many good quarterbacks lately. It's easy to to, to lose sight of what you're comparing him to. But uh, Bryce, Bryce has been very, very good. Yeah, we got a, a question coming up about Bryce Young, because that's definitely a topic that I want to dive into. Um, and, and with John Mechie, I, I agree. Now, granted, you know, some guys just aren't meant to, to receive all the defense's attention. You know, some guys thrive better when you've got an alpha somewhere else and you're able to, you know, Calvin Ridley is kind of dealing with that a little bit uh, on the NFL level. He had Julio Jones, and when Julio was healthy, he was that alpha, and defenses were scheming against him. And, and you know, Calvin Ridley was the guy who, you know, was getting the number two corner or, you know, maybe sometimes the number one corner, but they were rolling guys away from him towards Julio. You know, just however – you know, defenses chose to to scheme uh, against the Atlanta Falcons offense. Now he's kind of the guy. And how does he respond? And last year, even though, you know, Devontae Smith was stepping into a much bigger role, you know, he still had Jalen Waddle uh, at the time, or at least early in the season. But then when Jalen Waddle went down, Devontae Smith out of that foursome was the only one left at that point. And, and John Mechie had already established himself as a good number uh, three who was, you know, stepped up and became a number two. And maybe that's the role that he needs to be in. But I also think the usage is a little bit different. You know, you think about some of the deep passes that he caught last year. You know, you got Jamison Williams, who by far his biggest uh, asset as far as being a receiver, his best ability is winning vertically. And so, you know, back in the day, you know, you, you talk about, you know, uh, playing paper, rock, scissors with the receivers on who's going to run a certain route that should be the one that's going to score the touchdown. That was because all four guys they had had the ability to do it all. You know, they could win on the short to intermediate stuff. They were all good route runners. They could all win deep with their speed. You know, with Alabama's receivers now, you don't have four complete guys anymore to where you can just pick, oh, who's going to play this certain role? You know, it, stick a, any of them in there and they can do it. Now it's, you know, if you want a guy going deep and, and winning vertically, it's probably going to be Jamison Williams, and we've seen that with his big playability. If you want a guy who can, you know, take the big hits, be a lot more physical on the underneath stuff, you know, that's more of a John Mechie type. You know, he can fill that role, and, and he can be a high-volume pass catcher like you pointed out, which he has been. So 
He didn't have a good game against AM. I don't think he's been this dynamic receiver that maybe some people thought he was going to step up into that role this year, but he's still been a good receiver. And I still think, you know, he's an important part of the offenses, which is something that I'll continue to reiterate. All right. Next question. Um, Chris Bryant on Twitter asked on kickoff on the kickoff return for a touchdown, Will Riker kicked it to the middle of the field. Why? Usually he aims for the left, for the left corner. Now, granted, you might have something that I don't on this, but the guy's kicked a lot of them out of bounds. You know, I mean, he's, I want to say he's, he's done like three times this year. That's in my mind when he kicked it to the middle of the field, that's kind of what I thought was happening was he was trying to avoid doing that again. And that's what made him kick it. And, you know, the way that he did. And, uh, you know, you just got to credit the kick returner for, for making a big play. But am I off in that? Is there something more or is it, you know, is, is, is it as simple as that? I think it is as simple as that. He was trying not to kick it out of bounds. And, and I, I, you know, there's no way for us to know and, unless Nick Saban tells us specifically what, what, the, what the play was. I mean, sometimes when you have a kickoff, it's no different. There's different things you do on kickoffs. You have different, you know, you can call them plays if you want. I mean, in terms of how we're going to play this kick versus that kick, I don't know what they told Will before he kicked that ball. I just think there's one thing about kicking that people have to realize that maybe, uh, you know, don't realize this about kicking. And that is that, you know, you might have a plan. You might have a, hey, I'm going to kick this high and inside the 10 or, hey, uh, they want me to try to kick it into the end zone. Uh, It doesn't mean it'll happen. Here's here's my just Jimmy's guess after watching the replay of that two or three times. I think what Will was trying to do was kick it deep into the end zone. I, I don't think we were allowing a return. I think he was trying to kick it deep in the end zone. It just didn't get there. And and if you're like, well, we need somebody that can kick off that can get it there. Well, then find that person and send them to the National Football League because those are the best kickers on the planet Earth. In terms of kicking a football as high and far as possible, those are the best 32 guys in the world today, and they don't even do it every single time. They do it more often than the college kids, but not every single time. And it, it, it's no different. I bet half the people that listen to this podcast are more play golf. Uh, and I play golf some, and I'm not a, a great golfer. I'm okay, but I'm not great. But I've hit a golf ball 300 yards. I've hit a golf ball 290. When I tee off, I generally hit it 250, 260. Uh, it just doesn't go as far as I want it to every time. <laughs> it just doesn't. And, and kicking's the same way. Just because the kick ended up in a certain spot does not mean that is exactly what the kicker intended. It's not easy to kick a football some 65 yards high. Kicks have to be high. People need to understand that. Kicks have to be high because if you kick if you kick it as hard as you can, to kick it as far as you can, and you line drive it, and they catch it at the 10, the other team's at the 40. There's no, there's no way you can cover that. It's got to be high. So if you're kicking the ball and it's got to be high, sometimes it ain't going to get to the end zone. And that it may be as simple as that. Hey, I was trying to, I was trying to kick it 15 yards further than I did. And if you don't understand that, then you probably don't play golf. Well, and speaking of the golf reference, I mean, you're hundred percent right. What is, what makes Tiger Woods, Tiger Woods, you know, outside of his, you know, off the, off the course stuff. Now, um, his preference for, you know, the female anyways, besides the point, that's not where, that's not where I'm going with this. What makes Tiger Woods, Tiger Woods, 
you know, people can hit drives as far as Tiger. They can hit, you know, putts, you know, as well as, uh, as Tiger. Um, you know, it, it's his ability to do it more consistently than all the rest of those guys that makes him the greatest that, you know, that's ever played the sport. Um, consistency is key. And, you know, even people that I know, I could, I have friends that go out to the golf course and, and, you know, hit a drive as well as Tiger Woods has ever hit a drive before in his life. And then they go out there and they, you know, the next four drives, they, they can't do anything with it. They're putting it in the trees. They're, you know, they're coming up short. It's his ability to do what he does at such a high level consistently that makes him the best. And, and that, that speaks right to your point. And I completely agree. You know, it, it could be a situation where he was trying to avoid kicking it out of bounds could be a situation where he was just trying to kick it deep um and he came up short it, it we don't really know what the intentions were the bottom line is that is that it happened and my guess is the main priority on that kickoff was let's not kick another one out of bounds and i don't know what they what the adjustment was from there but um we'll, we'll answer one more question and we're going to move the bryce young stuff to tomorrow so you're definitely gonna have to tune in for that um but i, I do think that a big question on a lot of people's minds after that texas a&m Alabama game is the status of the coordinators. So Bama boy, Troy on Twitter, straight up asked, do y'all see Bill O'Brien or Pete Golding returning as coordinators next season? That question's fun. Um, <laughs> that question, and there's really all we, all we would have is, is guesses. I have no, no scoop. And that's because there would be no scoop to, to have. Uh, Nick, Nick Saban did not make a change at offensive or defensive coordinator this week <laughs> and is, is not going to until this, the season ends. Uh, all I have is a guess based on the totality of knowledge I have of the situation. And here's my guess. Uh, I think both Bill O'Brien and Pete Golding will be somewhere else next season. I, I believe that. That's my guess. Uh, thankfully, I don't have to wager on them. I'm not forced to uh, draft a Biloxi and wager on that. Uh, but I, I'm, I would bet against it. I think Bill O'Brien is going to be a head coach, uh, at a big college program next season. Uh, maybe even at USC, which is open, maybe at LSU, which is almost certainly going to be open. And there will be other openings as well. I think Bill O'Brien's resume is just too good to ignore. And now he has on top of already a great resume, the Nick Saban stamp of approval, and Nick, like he does for almost all of his assistants, will go to bat for Bill when USC calls Alabama and they ask Nick Saban. And th this happens, by the way, whether it's a headhunter or whether it's the AD at Southern Cal, they will call Nick Saban and say, we're considering hiring Bill O'Brien. Uh, you know, what, what are your thoughts on that? Bill, uh, Nick, Nick will give Bill O'Brien, uh, as he does for all of his assistants, I'm sure Nick will say good things. Uh, I think Bill will be not fired. We're not going to replace Bill O'Brien. I, I think if Bill O'Brien wants to be the offensive coordinator at Alabama next season, he will be. Was Nick happy with his play calls on Saturday? Nick made it pretty clear. I thought that he was. I, I think Nick wanted to run the ball down there around the goal line. I, I, I don't think you have to even read between the lines. I think that's what Nick said uh, in his press conference. But that doesn't mean that you, you fire your offensive coordinator. It's just like anybody else, anybody else that's got you know a boss or out there so, you know, or, or if you are a boss, say sometimes your employee does something that, that's not up to par. Do you fire them? No, you coach them up. And, and I think Nick probably had a word or seven or a thousand words with Bill O'Brien about, hey, let's run the ball in that instance. Uh, but he's not going to fire him or make 
uh, you know, Bill O'Brien has, has been way too successful for a long time doing this job. So no, now defensively is a little different. Um, I think this was a make it or break it year for Pete Golding, myself. I think a lot of uh, the reasons Alabama wasn't very good on defense the last two or three years are, are gone. And um, I think that might be a little different. I don't suspect that Pete Golding will be fired so much as I suspect Pete Golding will take a, another job, if that makes sense. Uh, and this is what I'd like to see for Pete, uh, who I do root for. I mean, you know, Pete, I mean, everybody that knows Pete likes Pete. Pete's also turned into a very good recruiter, by the way. Maybe not when he first got here, but he is now. Um, here's my feeling. And, and, and again, maybe it's more of a hope than a feeling, but I think Pete Golding will be a head coach next season at a, a group of five type team, uh, someplace like, uh, I'm just throwing it out there, uh, maybe Louisiana Lafayette after, uh, let's say Napier moves up to a power five job and then Golding is the new head coach at Louisiana Lafayette. That would, that would make a ton of sense to me. Uh, and it might be a job Pete would thrive in. Uh, I think an effort will be made for Pete to be a head coach somewhere next season. If not, then the Tosh Lupoi route, uh, I wouldn't be shocked to see Pete in the NFL, uh, next season in some job, uh, and if I had to guess right now, just because people want to know, then what's going to happen? If I had to bet, if, I, if, if somebody's driving me to, to Beau Rivage and Biloxi today and making me bet, uh, I would say our defensive coordinator next year is going to be Kevin Steele. Interesting. Um, you know, just his perception. And you're not going to uproot Nick Saban. So any kind of, you know, coop that he's planned, you know, at Auburn or wherever else in the past, I mean, you know, that that wouldn't fly if he was at Alabama. So maybe his issues and the way that he was viewed, just I, I – I think that he lost um, some appeal to a lot of people uh, after, you know, he kind of, the, the rumors were that he kind of betrayed, you know, some people and stabbed some people in the back. And I don't know how true that is. I mean, I'm not speaking definitively. I just know that's the rumors and that's kind of the perception that he has right now, according to a lot of, you know, people, but um, you know, it, Nick Saban, it, when has he ever fired a coordinator? Has that ever happened since he got to Alabama? Ironically, uh, everyone's favorite, Elaine, uh, was fired. But, you know. <laughs> well, he had but, already but, accepted a head coaching job, he, that, and he was moving he, on. Yeah, he was landing softly. And and I don't know that Lane would have been fired had he not already had that Florida Atlantic head coaching job at the time. But you're exactly correct. Nick doesn't operate that way. That's why I was picking my words kind of carefully. Uh, I don't think Nick is going to sit down Pete Golding and say, You've pissed me off for the last time. You're out. That's that's not how Coach Saban does it. Pete Golding's done a lot of good for Alabama. He's a good recruiter. Um, I, I, I think Nick is going to help Pete. I, I just think Nick's going to help Pete uh, get a job somewhere else. Uh, that, that's what I think, and and I could be wrong. And uh, like I said, I like Pete, uh, and, and I hope things work out for him. Yeah. But I do not believe he will be the defensive coordinator at Alabama next year. I think he'll be a head coach somewhere or maybe in the NFL like what happened with Tosh Lupoi uh, yeah. and Kevin Steele is much different situation than with Gus Malzahn. Nick has known Kevin Steele for a long time. They're friends. They talk. And Kevin Steele is currently doesn't have a job. They're the easiest guys to hire. Uh, Kevin has spent a lot of time in Alabama in Mobile. Uh, uh, Kevin is most often found in Mobile right now because his son is the offensive line coach at South Alabama. And uh, Kevin's kind of a, a frequent visitor slash unofficial consultant over there while Tennessee is paying him something like $900,000 that they owe him for uh, all the craziness that happened at, at Tennessee. So I think, uh, 
I, I, as a matter of fact, I'll, I'll be shocked if Kevin Steele's not on Alabama staff next year in some capacity. Uh, he knows Saban's system. He knows Nick personally. Nick likes him. He knows how Nick wants things done. And uh, that just makes all the sense in the world to me. Jeremy Pruitt would also be an incredible hire. But people just have to understand <laughs> Jeremy Pruitt. It, it, Tennessee is being investigated by the NCAA for violations that occurred during Pruitt's time there. And Jeremy Pruitt has a lawsuit against the University of Tennessee for money that he says Tennessee owes him for his unjust termination. Until those things are cleared up, he is unhirable at Alabama. Alabama doesn't hire people that have that hanging over their heads. There's no reason for us to do that. Now, if that whole stuff got cleared up, if you told me in the next month that NCA says there's nothing to the, that investigation and that Tennessee pays Jeremy what, what, what he's owed and there's no more litigation, then yeah, I would believe Jeremy would be the defense coordinator before I'd believe Kevin. But I think with those two big things going on in Knoxville, uh, until both of those things are cleared up, uh, how can Alabama hire somebody that's got to go testify under oath in a courtroom about recruiting at Tennessee? You can't have that. I mean, so yes, Jeremy's a great coach. Yes, I'd love to see him back. But until those things are cleared up, it's just not going to happen. Um, so what I was saying as far as, um, you know, but the, the point being with the defensive coordinator position, a Nick Saban's not happy with the play calling offensively. Did he call Bill O'Brien out directly? No, you know, he may, he went a very roundabout way of saying it, but everybody knew what he was talking about. And everybody pretty much takes it as Nick Saban calling out Bill O'Brien. If there were issues behind the scenes with Pete Golding, why haven't we heard him do something similar with him? You know, uh, right. all he ever speaks to is, you know, guys not executing. Um, if you're sitting there thinking, oh, well, he's got a loyalty issue. Tosh LePoy was ush ushered out the door after one year being the defensive coordinator. You know, he was a guy that Alabama valued uh, greatly as far as being a recruiter. He was well-respected as far as being an up-and-coming coach. They tried him out of defensive coordinator. They felt like he wasn't the guy for the job. They Nick Saban got him out of there after a year. Why hasn't he done the same thing with Pete Golding? If everybody's issues with Pete Golding um, it, it are true, you know, I, it just it, there's a lot of signs here that point to Pete Golding not being the issue. And I'm not saying that he's that I look at the the what's happening and I say, well, I don't think he's responsible for any of it. I think he definitely is. I just think there's more to it, and there's a reason why that. You know, he he gets the leash that he does with Nick Saban and why you never see Nick. You know, he'll he'll chew him out on the sidelines, but I guarantee I mean, I watched my head coach chew out our, you know, defensive line coach when the defensive line wasn't doing the stuff they were supposed to do. And it wasn't the fact that, you know, it was the coach's fault. It was just that he was the guy standing next to the head coach on the sidelines and he was the one that caught the butt chewing because the, the head coach was upset. So seeing him scream at, at Pete Golding on the sidelines about something doesn't necessarily mean that, that Pete Golding is the target and it's his fault. He could be sharing his frustrations with the closest guy to him that he possibly can. Um, and, you know, pretty much saying, hey, we got we need to get so-and-so doing so-and-so correct. Um, I'm just saying I understand the frustrations with people, and there is obviously some sort of issue here, and I don't know what that issue is. And if I did, then I could say, okay, here's the problem. Um, you know, it, it, you see offensive-minded you know, head coaches all the time. 
if they have an offensive coordinator and that offensive coordinator is not doing a good job moving the football, what happens, you know, nine out of 10 times the, the head coach will step in and say, okay, I'm taking over play calling duties. Normally once the season ends, that offensive coordinator is relieved of his duties and they go and they find somebody else. Nick Saban is one of the greatest defensive minds in, in, in the history of, of college football. A, why in any of these situations, if Pete Golding was the one responsible, has Nick Saban not stepped up and said, you know what, I'm going to take over play calling duties. We got to win this football game. You know, I mean, I understand trusting your coordinator, and I know that Nick Saban does that. So it would take a lot for him to step up and take the reins away from, you know, a, a Kirby Smart or a Jeremy Pruitt or a Tosh Lapoy or a Pete Golding or whoever else. And I, I totally understand that. It's just think about it logically. You know what? And, and you know, I actually had this discussion with my dad over the weekend. And he said, oh man, you know, and he was obviously saying this tongue in cheek, but pretty much saying, you know, oh, you know, Pete Golding must have something on Nick Saban because there's no way he should be still, you know, the defensive coordinator. And it's like, he didn't have nothing. I mean, there's something going on that we don't know about on, on a surface level and people need to understand that. Um, and I don't know what that is, but the bottom line is, is if you read between the lines, there's nothing that points towards Nick Saban thinking that Alabama's defensive issues are Pete Golding's fault. And, you know, I think if anything, his loyalty problem is more towards the players and not the coaches. I think that he's sticking with guys who don't need to be on the field. You know, last year, it took a lot for Daniel Wright to end up finally getting benched. Um, and now that he's benched and he's not playing a ton, once that transition gets made, you barely see Daniel Wright anymore. Um, I think there are some other guys that that probably needs to happen with. But Nick Saban, you know, he, he's seen their growth. He sees what happens behind the scenes. He knows how hard they work. Um, and he doesn't like benching players. And so it takes a lot. So that's my thing. I, I, and I know that this always feels like that I'm, I'm defending Pete Golding. And it's not even necessarily that I think Pete Golding deserves to be defended in some of these situations. I just think there's something here that we are not thinking about and we don't know about. And that's what's leading to the situation that we currently see Alabama's defense in. And I'm going to try to figure out what that is. And, what, and I just don't think that Nick Saban, for whatever reason, thinks Pete Golding is the problem. So that's my thoughts on it. Not saying that he's not going to be somewhere next year. I don't know. Um, you know, as far as being a head coach, I don't know how Pete Golding is constantly getting dogged like he is um, on, on social media and stuff. And, and a, a, a group of five school or somewhere else would look at that and say, that's who we want to make our next head coach. Um, just because of the perception, it's possible. But, um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if he ended up being a DC, you know, somewhere else next year if Nick Saban feels like he's responsible but I just don't know how much of it's Pete I don't know how much of it's the personnel I don't know how much of it's Nick Saban you know he he has a hand if they're not tackling correctly you don't think Nick Saban's not going to step in and say hey this is how we're going to teach tackling from now on you know if they're, if they're blowing coverages you don't think Nick Saban's not going to say you know what Pete uh love you buddy but I'm gonna step in here and get this situation fixed as far as coverage is being blown that can't happen anymore you know, I, I mean, personally, I think that he would. So it's, it's tough to, to assign blame, and I don't really know how to do it. And that's why I refrain and say, I'm just going to, you know, on in this situation, I'm going to trust Nick Saban, and that's what I've done. Hey, one, one last point, because I know I know we, we, we ran long, as, as of course, as we knew we would. But uh, one last point, and, and some of this is Pete's fault, because it's it's all the defensive coach's responsibility about, recruiting and putting their dudes on the field but i'm not i'm not going to use the word might i'm going to use the word will and if if someone forced you to wager a lot of money 
more money than you're ever comfortable willing to wager on anything, but someone forced you and said, I need you to fill in this sentence. How many players and who, who off this defense will definitely be a first round pick in some upcoming draft? Who is definitely a first round pick? The answer to that is Will Anderson, and that is it. Man, great now, point. There are others that might. I'm not going to say Tim Smith will never be a first-round pick. Uh, I'm not going to say that Drew Sanders, once he's healthy again, might be a first-round pick. Maybe Christian Harris because of how he'll test. Maybe Josh Job because of how he'll test in Indianapolis. But those are maybes in terms of, okay, who's going in the first round? Will Anderson. And Man. I bet throughout the whole dynasty – we have never had only one slam dunk first round pick. So I, I'm critical of Pete. If it's up to me and it won't be, we would have a dif different defensive coordinator next year. But we don't have the dudes that we once had. And that needs to be addressed because if anything is going to end this dynasty, it's not having enough dudes. Man, that, such an incredible point. Um, because that that's a very interesting. Normally, it's guys who we think are going to go in the first round that you know end up falling to the second. You know, an Xavier McKinney, a, an Ashawn Robinson, a Jerron Reed, a Reggie Raglan. Um, you know, there are plenty of players. You need you have the surefire first round picks that, that end up going. You know, even defensively. And then you have the guys who you think are going to go first round and, and you kind of, you know, some of those guys have been viewed as locks for first round and they end up falling to the second, but you never see us, you know, looking at Alabama's defense and saying, okay, who, who are the locks? And there's, there's one, you're a hundred percent correct. You know, do I think that Malachi Moore could eventually be a first round pick? Sure. Do I think Brian branch could eventually be a first round pick? Sure. Do, am I willing to bet, you know, uh, any significant amount of money that they will be? No, uh, because at this point, they're not showing enough to be, you know, viewed as a surefire first round pick. Plus, you got the Bama bump, and that's a very real thing, not just from a recruiting perspective, but because NF, yeah, NFL evaluators they look at Alabama's talent and they say, "I know they're well coached. I know that they're going to know their responsibilities. If, if if Nick Saban trusts them on a on a, you know, giving them a full plate, I know that we can too." Um, and, and yet, still, I don't know that any guys that are just, oh wow, that's definitely going to be a surefire first round pick, Henry Toa Toa. I think yeah. he's going to go a a lot higher than people think right now, but I don't think he's a first round pick. Uh, not at this point. Yeah, um, I think that there's there's some issues uh, with him that you know from a size perspective, from a you know a, a a lack of tackling consistency. I think that's a major issue. And some guys, you know, um, Grant Delpit was terrible at tackling at LSU. Since he's been with the Cleveland Browns, he got injured his rookie year, but. You know, now it, he seems to be doing a pretty good job of tackling because now you're in the NFL, you're making your money, and it's about, you know, earning that next contract. Um, you know, so maybe I'm not saying that Henry Toto, you know, holds himself back to save himself from the NFL. I'm just saying guys who have tackling issues on the college level, that doesn't always translate and that continue on the NFL level necessarily. Um, but we have run long, uh, That, but that's a great way to finish it. That's a great point. Uh, we have some more questions as far as defensive schemes and and – you know, nickel rabbits and, and Bryce young. And there was so much that we could have continued to go on with this. And we've already gone over an hour yet again. We ain't, we, we want, we wanted this to be a 40, you know, 45 minute podcast or episode. 
it just it was never going to happen and i kind of knew that going in but um it, we got we still got some great questions so we'll do another one of these tomorrow hopefully you've enjoyed listening to this we've covered a lot of different things we, we're long-winded you know there might be some points in this you know episode where you're saying man just you know you you've, you're beating a dead horse you've talked about this way too long we I, we just want to make sure we cover everything and, and you, that you think about everything when it comes to a lot of these topics so we hope you enjoyed it uh, we're certainly going to look forward to doing tomorrow's episode, doing the same thing, and we will talk to you guys soon. Jimmy, always appreciate you taking the time to hop on here and, and just, you know, your attention to detail and your, you know, willingness to to, to elaborate and give long answers and, and really try to give the, the people, the listeners, as much information as possible. I know I appreciate it, and I'm sure they do too. Hey, uh, 25 years of being paid by the hour as a lawyer. That's, uh, that's, that's, that's what y'all are, y'all are, y'all are getting. <laughs> I used to be able to talk a long time. I get, get paid more the longer I talk. So, uh, not, not the case here, but no, I, it's obviously, uh, we're both very passionate about the topics and, uh, it's rough, uh, after a loss, uh, you know, it had been almost two full calendar years since the last time we lost a football game. So, yeah, interest interest is high, and interest is high with me and you as well. A hundred percent. All right. So, I mean, I, yeah, we'll be doing this again. You know, if, if, if you enjoyed this, awesome. If you didn't, well, you know, expect more of the same tomorrow because that's exactly what we're going to be doing. But this has uh, been another episode of the Bama on Three Show. I'm your host, Clint Lamb, here with Jimmy Stein, and we will talk to you guys again tomorrow.